Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm excited uh, today about our lesson. Uh, we have reached a, a major milestone in our in our efforts to work through uh, a close reading of the Gospel of Mark. Ever since we began uh, in March, I've been telling you that it's uh, you know our, our goal will be to read this gospel literarily to, to see Mark as the artist that he is, and thereby to understand what he's trying to communicate. And today we reach uh, a major. Uh, point in his literary effort, because uh, this gospel lesson today uh, brings us uh, to uh, a new uh, a new part of the story. After today, Jesus will have have finally uh, reached Jerusalem, and we'll we'll begin to see the passion story unfold. And so we we've, we've been walking through this story today, and today we see. I've been telling you that it's it's uh, fascinating when we step back and see what Mark, as an artist, is doing in trying in order to try to, uh, to in order to convey to us uh, the meaning of this life that he witnessed. And uh, today, I think you really see that artistry well. So that's what we'll be going through. I'm really excited. But before we get into that, I want to remind you because I think it's essential for our understanding today of what we spoke about last week, because last week we saw that Jesus and the disciples and now many, many followers who were uh, outside of the, the group that called themselves disciples, um, were they were on this journey from the most northeastern tip of the Roman province called Palestine and, and already en route to Jerusalem. And during this time, Jesus has been teaching, he's been doing catechesis, uh, teaching the disciples, preparing them for what will follow, and uh, preparing them by imparting wisdom that they will need uh, in order to carry on his work. Uh, we know that retrospectively. But what happened last week was, uh, as, as uh, they were uh, on their journey, a wealthy man came up to them. And this is where we had that uh, very famous saying where, where Jesus borrows a, a, a very famous, uh, very commonly used Middle Eastern proverb where it says it's harder for, it's impossible, you know, it's, it's harder for a, a, an elephant to get through a needle than whatever it is that you're wanting to convey as being impossible. And, 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 and the, in the Palestinian uh, version of that, it's harder for the largest animal known to them to get through an eye of a needle, which is, uh, of course, a camel, the dromedary. Uh, and Jesus, in other words, saying, making the point uh, as he encountered this rich man who wanted to be a disciple, who uh, found it too difficult uh, to 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 follow the way because he'd have to. Jesus told him that he'd need to give up all his possessions. Uh, Jesus gives us this saying, making the point that it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the dominion of God. In other words, to have their hearts be reign, you know, have, have God reigning in. In them and thereby to have this intimate personal relationship in which they will what God wills. And so we, we unpack that a little bit. And I encourage you to listen to uh, the, the sermon from last week uh, on the podcast uh, for, for, for that information, because I think it's essential today to what Mark uh, you know, does in our stories. But you, the, the key point of that that I would like for you to remember is that Jesus calls us by name and he looks into our hearts and he names the things that are our, our, our eyes, our, our, that are our obstacles to that full and rich relationship with God that is life itself. He, he is calling us into life. And in this case, he named 
that wealth, those possessions, uh, as the man's obstacle. And what we saw was uh, the, the obstacle for the man was his blindness. In other words, his, his inability to see his possessions for what they were. And, and I made the point that, uh, that uh, welcoming the dominion of God, welcoming God's reign in our hearts and mind means being liberated so that we learn over a lifetime to see all of our possessions as gifts that we are meant to steward and not as measures of our own um, holiness or as uh, as as uh, uh, ways that we achieve relationship with God. They are a means of grace, not the end of grace. Very important backdrop to our story today. So today we continue with this, what I'm calling this catechetical journey as Jesus is going to Jerusalem. I, uh, I, I I want to make sure we don't bypass what I think is a very little interesting detail along the way where Jesus, where Mark tells us that the disciples were amazed. Uh, so, so Jesus has told them twice already that he's going to Jerusalem and what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that he is going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. And, and so he's told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And, and so I love this, the, the introduction of our text today, where, where Mark tells us that Jesus and disciples were on their way, and Jesus was in the lead. So I have this vision of this guy just walking, you know, at a very rapid pace up the hill, up the, toward the Holy Mountain in Jerusalem, uh, leading them. And it says that uh, the disciples were amazed. And meanwhile, the oikos, the, the other followers uh, who stayed behind, they weren't amazed. They were afraid. What's going to happen here? So it's a great drama that, that, that Mark sets up here. I just want to make sure you, as an aside, don't miss, it, miss that. But what happens in our text today is we see Mark recalling the third passion prediction, the third prediction of what's going to happen uh, to Jesus when he gets there. And they have the same elements in that story that uh, we've seen before, but but uh, in much more detail. And in fact, you could take these sentences here. Uh, they're going to go to Jerusalem. Jesus will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they'll hand him over to the Romans for execution. And then those people will ridicule you him, spit ridicule him, spit on him, torture him, and kill him. Well, that's that's pretty much the plot that we're going to see. Uh, going forward once they get into Jerusalem in our next couple of weeks. And of course, after three days, he will rise up, uh, something that would have been and was inscrutable uh, for the disciples to understand at that point when they heard it the first time. But Jesus does something new here in this third prediction of his passion narrative. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't just tell them what's going to happen. He, for the first time, tells them why. It's going to happen. And this is very important to our story. Uh, I think, first of all, it's, it's important to us, uh, not the least because we're, you know, we're the ones who often ask, well, why did Jesus have to die? And, and I, I urge you, if, if you want to drill into that question in a deep way, uh, go back in, on the podcast and listen to the Easter uh, sermon there where that's our topic. Why did Jesus have to die? But Mark gives us another dimension on that, a, a, a different take on that that's very common, commonly uh, uh, understood by us today. Uh, and it has to do with Jesus naming how Jesus saw himself and his role as the Messiah. 
and, and one of the things that's important for us is to remember that there was no monolithic understanding of who the Messiah would be. Uh, in the literature of the time and in, in, the, in the centuries before, there was a, a great diversity of opinions of what the Messiah would be like. But the dominant one was that of King David. And I say king, you know, advisedly, the word king. Imagine, you know, our own George Washington on his white steed with his sword at his belt and the military behind him. You know, that's that's who King David was. He was the royal one who corrected all the wrongs and united Israel and protected them. And, and the, the dominant expectation of the Messiah would be that was that he that the Messiah would do something like that. And so in context, he would be some kind of militaristic leader who would somehow throw off the yoke of the Romans. But Jesus doesn't understand his own role that way. He invokes the a motif that comes from the what I call the gospel of Isaiah. And he, he tells us what the, that meaning of his death will be. He says that the human one, and the human one you remember is a, is a, is a symbol that we get from the book of Daniel, um, didn't come to be to be served, but rather to serve. And here's the important point I want to draw attention to right now, uh, to give his life to liberate many people. In other words, Jesus's suffering has a purpose. I want to make sure that we notice that. This is something I've shared with you before, uh, is, is unique to uh, the the Christian understanding of how God functions. We uh, are distinctive in our insistence that our suffering can have a purpose, that, that in contradistinction from the, um, the, um, oh, uh, the, the Hindu and other Eastern religions, uh, we don't hold that suffering is to be avoided that suffering is something that we just sort of go through in life, but it'll get better when we when we leave this life. We say that suffering in our life, God actually acts through that. And this is what we see Jesus saying here. And his particular purpose, he says, is to free the people. Uh, and and in, in the, the, the New Revised Standard Version, it has the same thing. The translation talks about he will give his life as a ransom for many. And this, this word ransom is actually a literal translation of the Greek uh, in, in the sense of giving something so that the captive is released. Um, this comes from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52. So I want to give you a bit of history so you put this in context. The prophet Isaiah spanned, his, his scroll spanned 250 years. But this portion here in, in chapter 53 uh, comes from a time when, when uh, the, the Jews were in captivity in, in um, Babylon. They're in exile. And they're, and they're they're writing down the scriptures that we know as the Old Testament for the very first time. And they're asking themselves, how did this happen? How is it that this life that I'm leading now happened to me? You know, why, why has God turned God's face from me? Why has God abandoned me? Uh, uh, you know, abandoned us as a people so that we find ourselves with our, 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 our old, our past burned to, to the ground, you know, Jerusalem had been burned to the ground, and we're now prisoners and slaves in Babylon. And they, they wrote uh, all the books, they, they redacted all the books that we know now as the Old Testament. But, but the prophet Isaiah talked about this in his oracle, this person that, that, that we uh, theologians call the suffering servant. And he said to the people, God said to the people 
uh, through Isaiah that God was going to rescue them, that they, he would build a way for, for them through the wilderness, and that the one who would lead them would be this person that he would rise up. And this is where we have this phrase that you're familiar with from Christmas or from Advent. But this suffering servant was wounded for our transgressions. You, you know it. Say it with me if you can. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what we see is this suffering servant uh, who has absorbed and taken all of our sin upon himself and offered himself sacrificially as the lamb to be sacrificed for our at-one-ment, our atonement. The word atonement means to be made as one, to be reconciled. And so for the purpose of bringing us together, this suffering servant would give himself um, so that we might be at one with God. We would be atoned with God, the day of atonement uh, on the cross for us. And, uh, and, and so Isaiah goes on to say, when you, that's the Yahweh, make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, that's us, and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord will prosper. And so that is the will of the Lord, according to the prophet Isaiah, that the suffering servant will, will uh, suffer uh, so that we might be brought out of our exile. And out of his anguish, he shall see the light. And, he, and, uh, and it talks about, again, my servant shall make many righteous, make us righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So again and again, you see this suffering service servant uh, understanding the Messiah that was a minority report, if you will, among the rabbinic uh, thinking about what the Messiah would be like. Jesus now, in, in what Mark is recalling, is saying, this is how Jesus understood what he was doing. He was going to Jerusalem. He was leading his disciples at a very fast clip such that they were amazed because he understood his job was to go liberate God's people through being that suffering servant for us. So that's Jesus' self-understanding of his mission. What's interesting is it, was it wasn't the way his own disciples understood it. His own disciples repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark don't quite get it. So on this catechetical journey where Jesus has been schooling them so that they learn to see the world the way Jesus sees it, they keep being the ones who never quite get it. And we see others who will pop up who are not among the disciples who will see Jesus and name him who he really is. And they will get this liberating, redeeming uh, uh understanding of the Messiah instantly, intuitively, and his disciples will be the one, the ones who don't quite get it. And that's what we see immediately following uh, Jesus's passion um, narrative, because the ones that uh, just just last week uh, were, were, were asking, well, you know, arguing about uh you know, who among us, you know, you know, will, will be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, the two of them, the, the two brothers, James and John, come to Jesus and uh, and ask for something quite extraordinary. Now, I want you to imagine, uh, you know, um, someone coming up to you and, and asking what they ask. Uh, I was thinking um, if my nephew uh, were to go up to, to his his dad or his mom and brother Solomon or Asha and, and, and say, hey, mom and dad, I want to ask you something. I want you to agree in advance before I tell you what it is that you'll do for me whatever you want, whatever I'm going to ask you. You know, you would go, whoo, 
you know, you back off. And that's uh, quite a an aggressive posture. Um, and uh, and that's what uh, these folks who have been following Jesus, who ought to have known better, did. Uh, James and John, the two brothers, because they say he, he, Jesus responds to them. I want you to remember this. This is what he asks. He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question you'll see that Jesus asks us. What do you want for me to do for you? And notice what they ask. Allow one of us to sit on your right and the other on your left when you enter into your glory. So you and I, I want to make sure we hear this, because when we hear enter into your glory, well, for us, that doesn't seem an odd question so much in a sense of entering into your glory, because we are the ones who live on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, who do use the language, and we speak of his glory, his visibility, how he is visible to us, which is what the word glory means to glorify someone is to make them visible. And so, you know, Jesus being supremely visible to the world, you know, we are to glorify Jesus. Right. Uh, and so they, it was it, to, 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 to uh, speak of Jesus's glory is to speak of his triumph. Uh, and uh, of course, we understand that on our side of the resurrection, but this is before that. And so what we see is that James and John and the other disciples are anticipating that this march to Jerusalem is going to be like the common understanding of the Messiah, that somehow, like King David, Jesus was going to liberate people from the yoke of Rome. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so they have this militaristic thing uh, in their minds, is modeled in their minds of what's about to happen. Somehow, uh, King David was rising again and was going to liberate uh, Israel. And so therefore, he would have the glory of a king. And so they're saying, hey, after the battle, honor us because we're your you're your top lieutenants right i mean that's basically what they're saying they're trying to set up what their role will be after the after the battle is done and jesus replies you don't know what you're asking and he and then he, and then he asks a question that again that, that we can understand today because we practice the eucharist but let's understand it the way that would have been you know, before all of that had happened, can you drink the cup I drink? You know, scholars understand that the cup, you know, take this cup away from me, Jesus in Gethsemane prays, you know, this cup of, of uh, self-humiliation, this cup of, of that carries with it the sting of death, this poison, take this away from me, take this cup that, that will be filled with my blood away from me. This, and, 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 so, and so they're saying, can you drink that cup? Can you receive the baptism I received? Now, one of the things when I think of this, can you receive the baptism that Jesus asks? I'm reminded of going to Canterbury when I was a Canterbury scholar. I took a trip out to Brittany, which is on the coast of England that's across the channel. You can see France. And uh, there you can see the when the when the when the Romans uh, came to England uh, and established uh, their the first uh, presence there right on those shores, uh, they established uh, churches. And one one of the things that's preserved there is an old uh, one of the oldest baptismal fonts that we've ever found. And and what we've learned about the baptismal fonts of the early church, and they they would have already been existing about the time Mark's writing, uh, was that they were always carved in rock. So most many of us were baptized by sprinkling. Some of us may have been baptized by immersion. Some of us were we would have been baptized by being doused. But originally. 
they, they had intricate baptismal fonts that uh, you would walk into. If you can imagine a jacuzzi, they're about that size, but they were always, well, not always, but usually carved out of rock into the shape of a uterus. A uterus, you know, the, the, the place in which we are given new life, right? So symbolically, uh, a whole, you know, grabbing onto the, mo- the metaphor, the feminine metaphor that gives us life, we step into this womb, into the water, and then we submerge ourselves below the waters of chaos, signifying our death. We die our current life, and then we arise in our new persons, right? And that's what baptism is. And so Baptism has this connotation of a death to ourselves. And so it's not about, can you have water sprinkled on my head, but can you take on the death of yourself? When Jesus says, can you receive the baptism I receive? He's speaking about, can you die so that you might live? Now, they respond uh, you know, a, a lot like my kids through the ages have responded. I, I like to carry the luggage from our car, uh, from the hotel uh, to, our, to our car, and uh, Sadir will always help me. Uh, and, uh, and, and I said, you want to help? He said, sure. He, he said, I can carry it, and he'll pick like the heaviest bag. And, and I said, well, go ahead. And he'll, he'll pick it up intellectually, move it a few seconds. And he says, no, I can't. You take it. Uh, and, and that's how James and John were. They said, yeah, I can carry it. Uh, they answered rather you know, with a lot of bravado, you know, not knowing what they're talking about, not knowing how heavy this load will be. Um, so I love that little anecdote because I think it's a story about James and John. It's a story about us often. But the important point about this, I think, is what Jesus then continues to say, because he starts to explain how all of what's about to happen is connected with God's deliverance of God's people, God's deliverance of us. And he comes back to this metaphor that we have seen repeated again and again over the last four to five weeks, how how. You can't understand God's redemptive plan. You can't really participate in it fully and play your role in it unless you get this idea that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Until you get that, you're not going to get through. You're not going to get be able to receive the kingdom and the, 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 the dominion of God in your heart the way uh, Jesus is teaching you. So what happens? Uh, well, we see that all the disciples got angry. The other disciples got angry with James and John because they had, you know, tried to corner the market on glory. Uh, and then Jesus says this important point. You know, um, he he, does, he he teaches them uh, what's wrong with the way they're thinking as they think of uh, of of their own glory as they walk along the way. And he, he, he invokes something, a, a lesson I think comes from the Old Testament lesson that Steve Skews read to us so well this morning. Uh, he says, you know, the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high ranking officials order them around. Uh, but that's not the way it's to be with you. And, uh, and then he says this, this very important point. This is the way it's to be after I'm gone, especially he's teaching them. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the doulos, the servant, the slave of all. For the Messiah didn't come to be served. The Messiah came to serve. 
and to give his life to, to liberate many people. This is turning the world's values upside down, folks. This wasn't anybody's understanding of what uh, a ruler does. This is, it wasn't anyone's understanding of how one leads. This is Jesus teaching what truly human leadership is, servant leadership, one whose eyes are not seeking to be served, but seeking to serve. That's how you were first among us. And I, I just want to point out that he invokes here the thing that we read from 1 Samuel, where, where the people were demanding that there be a king over them. And, 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 and God says to Samuel, go ahead and give him a king, but, but understand that they're asking for one of themselves to be king over you is, just is, can only be understood as saying that they reject my reign, my reign, my godly reign. They reject that and prefer one of their own to be the one uh, who reigns in their hearts. And when we do that, when we, when we um, have uh, these these models of organizing organizing ourselves that are based upon subordinating ourselves to a king, we then get we find ourselves in exile. And he gives this long litany that Steve read to this long litany that Steve uh, read to us. Uh, that uh, turns out to be exactly, when you read the story in the Old Testament, exactly what happened to the Jews. All the things here, when you read the Bible from end to end, you see this is like an outline of the story that is told from the book of Kings all the way to the Jews being in exile in Babylon. And, and the important point is that when you get a king, you will be that king's slaves. Uh, but you're not to be the you know the you know the, the slaves of any king. That's not how I designed you. That's not what your purpose is in life. No, you're to serve all, all. Um, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. So this Jesus is saying, this is the way. This is what the way is. This is the way of the suffering servant. So what Jesus is talking about is uh, how he is going to atone for our sins. We need to remember that that's Jesus's work. That's not something we do. He alone is the one who reconciles us. But we are to carry on that way uh, beyond that of living in this way, on, uh, you know, in, in the way of the suffering servant, because this is how God is bringing out about the reconciliation of the world, our capacity as Jesus's disciples to, to strive to be the servants of all, living into the servant leadership model, our leaving behind the possessions that would possess us and accepting the fact that God is liberating us from our possessions and liberating us from our needs to be uh, the first among others so that we might be uh, part of his kingdom. And so uh, Jesus is telling us that we are called to serve rather than being served. And that is our role in helping God redeem the world. So that's what Jesus has said so far. We have this wonderful story that Mark has shared with us. And then we have the, you know, the story changes because they get to Jericho. Jericho is 15 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. And, and from Jericho, you have an ascent. So right before you, you know, it's the Mount of the Holy Mountain, right? And right before you is is uh, the Mountain of Jerusalem. And, and uh, it's, uh, it's a thousand 
foot climb, you know, from Jericho up to that elevation. And right there, uh, there, there was then and there is now something that we see a lot in the United States, you know, beggars who are waiting for because every pilgrim had to go through from the north had to go through Jericho in order to get to the holy city. And there were there was a constant flow of pilgrims. And so beggars would congregate there. And, uh, and they would um, meet the pilgrims and, and live off of the charity of the pilgrims. Um, and so that's where Jesus and his followers reached at this point in our story. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho, about to enter into Jerusalem, Mark recalls that there was this blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, meaning son of Timaeus, son of Timothy, basically, uh, today. Uh, and he was sitting on the side of the road. So I want you to visualize that and imagine that something you've seen many times where someone has a, a coat or a, a sheet or a blanket right in front of them. They're, they're, on, they're sitting down on the street and, 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 and you throw a coin or two or whatever you, you can offer to help them. And that's what this man is doing. That's what he's evidently been doing for a very long time. He's blind and he's a beggar. Those two those two uh, identity points are very important to our story. And when he heard that Jesus was coming, obviously he had, had uh, heard about who this person was, and he, and he names Jesus correctly. He names him Son of David, meaning the, the promised Messiah. And, he, and, he, and what he expects from him is something different. He says, show me mercy. Show me mercy. And the crowd sort of stifled him. <laughs> you, know, you know, this is the, there's something bigger going on here. You just be quiet. Don't get in the way. But they tried to quiet him down. And he says, again, show me mercy. And Jesus stops, call him forward. And the people, you know, get on board with that. Okay, oh, he's calling you. Be, be encouraged. And then notice this. The man throws his coat to the side. And he jumps up. Then he goes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him the same question that he asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? The same question he's asking you today. And the blind man says, teacher, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And when Mark tells us that the blind man was able to see instantly and he followed Jesus. Where did he go? Well, we know where he went. He went to Jerusalem. So he followed Jesus to Jerusalem. This is, I think, a, a profound illustration that Mark is giving us of this unexpected recruit. This was a man at the very bottom. He was the least of us. He was not only blind, but he was impoverished. And he, he, was, he was one who was, uh, for a male, at the lowest level of social acceptability. He didn't have a bunch of possessions. So he's in stark contrast to the man that we saw last week. He had no possessions that he had to go to sell. All he had were the coins in his blanket. And what did he do when he met Jesus? He threw up his coat. So when I think of that, I think of all coins that were collected. They're just spilling everywhere, and he's leaving it all behind instantly, and he's following Jesus. And so the blind beggar, Mark, shows us this incredible contrast. The blind beggar and not the rich man is the one who follows Jesus. And interestingly enough, the blind beggar's vision is restored. But as we remember last week, it's the rich man who went away blind. He was unable to see his possessions rightly. He didn't get it. 
And so it's the blind beggar who had the eyes to see, and when he saw, he followed. And there's a contrast not just with the rich man, there's a contrast with James and John. They asked, uh, Jesus asked them the question, what do you want me to do? James and John said, John James said, give me, give us the seats of honor. Make us visible next to you. And Bartimaeus said, Jesus asked the same question, what do you want me to do? And he says, I just want to see. I want to see what an incredible contrast Mark has shown here. And I think that Bartimaeus, Mark is saying, is for us the paradigm of a disciple. He knows that he's blind. He knows his status. He knows he's made of dust. He understands his complete dependence on God. He knows he needs Jesus's help, and he's persistent. He will not be stifled in his pleas for help. And uh, he also takes a different posture. He doesn't speak of entitlement. He doesn't say, how can I inherit? How can I obtain? What can I, how can I check the boxes so that I get uh, eternal life? No, he asks for mercy, not for something for which he's entitled, but from the posture of one who brings nothing, offers nothing that would justify, he's asking for unmerited grace because he knows he can't merit grace. And he leaps at the chance to receive help from Jesus, and he follows him. Folks, I think this is the paradigm of what we're called to be as disciples, to recognize our own blindness. And so what happens here? Well, Jesus, I think in this story, uh, gives us very good news because he is turning upside down the values and helping us to see the values that we must hold on to if we are to be fully human. The human one is showing us how to be human in all of what God intends humanity to be, the fullness of that. And and, and he's telling us that the key for us is to recognize that means that, that we recognize it's our fundamental to our identity that we are called to serve rather than be served. When we, are, when we are seeking always to be served, we are not being human. We are being something that is less than human. It dehumanizes us to live such a life. And Jesus' purpose, we're told here, is to liberate us. Our suffering has a purpose just as his did. And so when we suffer, uh, God is teaching us uh, somehow through our suffering how to love, how to love our fellows and how to love God more deeply. Uh, God's removing those obstacles. Uh, And it's through our efforts to serve others, that's the key because that's the way in which we participate in Jesus's body. Through our self-offering, we participate in his self-offering. That relationship with God is thereby deepened. And so thereby Jesus heals us. He heals our blindness. Uh, when we approach him with someone who is truthful about our complete dependence on God for all that we have, uh, and, and thereby we'll learn to walk side by side him along the way he leads. So I think this is extraordinary good news, folks, on this day. May we uh, take this to heart and be transformed and have uh, our own astigmatisms uh, healed somewhat today as we hear this message. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.